Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today I'm talking with Claudia Beechen. Claudia is a self-taught British-American artist living in San Francisco and England. Her work has been selected for a number of exhibitions, including the Outwin Boochever Portrait Competition at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C., the Royal Society of Portrait Painters at the Mall Galleries in London, and the Pastel Society of America at the National Arts Club in New York, where she was awarded the Herman Margulies Award for Excellence. Fascinated by the human condition, Claudia has worked with communities across the world in both mental health and therapeutic art settings. She holds a BA in philosophy and psychology from the University of Oxford and an MSc in social anthropology from University College London. And Listeners, your appreciation for what we're going to talk about today will really be enhanced if you go to the website for the project we're talking about, uh, which is called Thoughts in Passing. The website is thoughtsinpassing.com, and you can see the portraits that we're going to be discussing today. Welcome, Claudia. Hi, Cheryl. Very glad to have you today. And as you know, I was fortunate enough to attend uh, an event as part of Ned, Ned Buskert's You're Going to Die project where your work was featured, a really special evening. So uh, I love it when I'm able to actually um, meet the people that I have on the show. So that was a real pleasure. And to see your um, art exhibit when you were out here as well. Yes, I was so grateful for you to come to both of those. They were they were really wonderful, and um, of course, I'm I'm always thinking of the the human story behind the product. In a way, um, what came <laughs> what what brought you to do this project? Because it wouldn't be, um, you know, naturally intuitive for someone young as you are. Uh, to do a project where you're investigating the end of life, we should say all the portraits that you that you featured were of people uh, in the last six months or so of their lives. Yes, absolutely. So I um, this this project I worked on over over a period of two years. Um, so I started in. It was about February 2014, um, and for me, this project was never really about end of life. It was really about living and understanding why people live the way that they do and, and how we should live, how we could live, um, and the ways in which we can find meaning in our lives. That's been a question that I've been fixated on since I was really a young child, so now at, at 30, um, I don't feel young on my journey, but I suppose hopefully I have a long way ahead of me. But this is 
really a question that I've been concerned with ever since I can I can remember. Um, and 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 I tried so many different ways, and and am trying so many different ways to try and answer that question. And as you just as you just sort of told the viewers, I've I've studied philosophy and psychology and anthropology, and it's always been in a bid to understand this question of of how we should live and and how what what constitutes a meaningful life. Um, so a couple of years ago, I, I decided that really one of the best ways to do this would be to speak to people who were on their deathbed. And I, for one, had never had a conversation with somebody who was dying. And I had the belief or the inclination that they might be able to tell me about what they had learned in their life. And, and their being at the end of their life, knowing that they had six months or less to live, that a lot of, of what it all meant, what it all was for and what really mattered would maybe come into sharp focus for people. For me, my art and, and the portrait making was really a vehicle to be able to share those messages and those stories. And I feel very lucky to be able to draw. But like I said, it was really, that, that's what I wanted to sort of hold, hold the messages together with. It was never really the sort of whole of the project. That's interesting because, um, you know, it's not, uh, I mean, I know from before I encountered death myself, it's not a natural thing if you have not encountered death to be drawn to talk to people who are dying. That's a pretty unusual impulse. And it sounds as if you've, you were not intimidated by that. You just wanted to know, do they have anything they can tell me about the meaning of life? Yes. Um, so um, that, did that overcome your hesitation <laughs> or, or did you just not have hesitation? Uh, no, I had a lot of hesitation. I think it was <laughs> my fear and my hesitation that drove me to do it. Um, because, I mean, if you really want to learn anything about, about life, you have to go to where, to what scares you the most. And, and, and death and dying is certainly the thing that not only scares me most, but, but from doing this project and just in generally, I think knowing people is the thing that scares most of us most. I was, I was terrified of doing this project and that's exactly why I did this project. Um, in fact, I listened back to the early recordings of the, of the interviews and when I'm talking to people, especially when I'm talking to them very, very directly about the fact that they're dying and I ask them, what does it feel like to be dying? I can hear the trembling in my voice. And I, I distinctly remember the first time I was driving to the hospital to meet my first subject. And I was terrified. My hands were sweating. I was really nervous. I was worried about what I was going to say. And I was like, God, oh, I'm feeling this way. And I'm somebody that's deciding to do an entire project dedicated to these people and their stories and, and this topic how does everyone else feel who won't even turn their attention to it full stop? You know, it's interesting because I, I uh, have become what's called a booster for this open ideal project that's going on, uh, which is trying to generate conversations and ideas about how to, how to face the end of life, how to make that um, a better experience, I guess. And I actually mentioned you to them because they're very interested in the arts. So that's a sideline. But um, they, they were, um, it, it was causing me to think about how I was about death before I actually experienced it. 
and how I've been since that time, there's really no comparison. And so it makes me wonder whether that fear of death perhaps changed somewhat for you uh, spending so much time so intimately with people who were facing their deaths. Is the fear still the same or is it somewhat different? It's, it's, it's definitely very different. Um, I think in some ways, in some ways it's, it's, it's sort of scarier, but lot, but mainly, mainly it's, mainly it's not. I think actually the main thing that it did is took some of the fear out of living for me. Mm. Um, I think, I think it just very much brought home the reality, not only the reality of the end, but the speed with which it is going to come. And that, to me, didn't feel scary. It sort of just woke me up to this feeling of, oh, okay, so to, to, know, that it's, to know that it's coming, rather than making you want to, want to sort of rush through everything and manically try and get as many life experiences as I could and never being satisfied with what I had and just having to jump and jump and jump, and kind of take as much as I could, it, it, it completely flipped that process around for me and made me much more deeply committed to the life that I have. And I don't think it would necessarily do that for everyone. I think I was, I was on this other track where I think I was very aware of the fact that we're going to die, but also very, very fearful of that fact. And I think what it did is it compelled me to just keep moving, keep grabbing, keep going after new experiences, and I think by really looking at it closely and intimately and compassionately, it, it completely flipped it around for me, and it, it's given me a much deeper contentment with what I have, really. That's such a beautiful result. Um, you know, it's a lucky one. It could have gone many ways, I suppose. <laughs> But but interestingly, you know, having having watched it now a few different times and uh, uh, watched and listened a few different times, because of course there is audio connected as well. Uh, I want to describe yeah. the project a little for people who maybe didn't go right to the website. Your portraits, uh, all of them, I feel as if I have I have sort of. Um, walked into the person. I don't know how else to describe it. It doesn't feel like a drawing. It it feels as if I've actually and it doesn't even feel like sitting in a room with some somebody. There's a way I felt as if I was actually entering the the people. Does that make any sense? <laughs> Uh, well, it's it's an incredibly high compliment, so I hope it makes the sense that I'm hearing you say. <laughs> um, but that's exactly, I mean, that was exactly my my dream of, of, of what could possibly come out of what I was making. I deliberately made the pieces just ever so slightly larger than life-size. In all of them, the people are looking directly at the viewer, Um I did make them in, in black and white. So everything is done in graphite pencil. So I could have, I mean, most of my work has been in color, uh, but I wanted to do it. It just, it just felt like it made more sense for the topic and what I was trying to do. But what I really deeply wanted people to have was to be able to have an intimate connection with this person and to feel like they were sitting down with this person and having a one-on-one conversation with them. One thing I thought, um, well... Uh, Two things, 
that that were very much on my mind as I was as I was getting to know you through your work. One is that uh, that kind of intimacy it reminded me quite a bit of a of a an early guest I I had um, who his name is Angelo Merendino he's a photographer and he photographed his wife's cancer. Um, experiences their their experience with her cancer and ultimately his death her death and that series had a similar intimacy for me but they were a couple (laughs) and so one thing that was really on my mind was you allowing yourself to become that intimate with those people and them allowing you because I can't imagine how you could have drawn them that way really without that kind of deep connection. Uh, and I just wondered how that was for you. Yeah, that's a really, that's a really good question. When I first started the project, I, I had kind of tracked out, maybe thinking I was going to meet with each person sort of two to three times and would get everything covered and I could move through fairly quickly and, and go and interview. And it became very apparent very quickly that that was not, going to be the right method for this and actually if I wanted to really move people with the work then I needed to spend a lot more time with people so on average I met each person about once a week for six to seven weeks and then typically after that if they were well enough I would meet them again and we would go for lunch or, or something and um, I tried to stay in contact with people the people that are still alive and um, it was of fundamental importance that I felt deeply connected to them. It was even bigger importance that they felt really connected to me because without that connection, there was no way I was going to be able to make my viewers feel intimately connected. And if they didn't feel intimately connected, then the whole project would fail. I mean, the entire idea was not only let's get people talking about death, but let's actually bring it into their lives in a very very quiet, very gentle, very intimate way, but extremely honest way. That was really the angle that I wanted to to take. But in terms of how it was for me emotionally, it was it was hard. I mean, I don't know what else to say. It was really hard. I knew I had to go there in order to... I knew I had to go there to make the work good, but it was much bigger than that. I knew I had to go there to... I knew I had to go there for my own for my own life. For my, I mean, I I'm like that with people in general. I need to. I want to go there. I want to understand. You know, what is it that makes you tick? What is it? You know, people will sit down for me for an hour and they'll be like, "Am I oversharing?" And I'm like, "No, no, no. It's great. I love you." But it was. You know, you sort of get really you get really deep into somebody's life, and then I would get a call a couple of weeks later, and they would be and they would say, you know whoever it was at that moment in time that they that they had died. And the first couple of, oh no, every time that happened, it, it shook me. It just, I couldn't get it around my head, particularly in the early part of the project, that how could I have spent all this time with this person and then they're suddenly gone. As though I was surprised. And that was always, I mean, that was always what was going to happen. That was always what the project was about. And yet it would happen and it's still it still was so surprising and so shocking. And, and each time I mourned everybody, I mean, I, how could I not? So 
Would you say in general you're a person who, who does dive into what you're afraid of? Because that's a deep dive that you took um, to, to, to do something so deeply thought. intimate. Yes? Sorry, I think we have, I know I'm, I'm currently far away. So <laughs> no problem. I, I have a little time um, delay. I apologize. Uh, that's okay. I was wondering if that is something about you in general that when something uh, scares you, you tend to go towards it to figure it out. Yes, I like to think. I like to think so. I certainly am drawn to the unknown, and I think the unknown is inherently scary. I think most of our fear emerges from from the unknown. And I mean, I think so much of our fear around death and dying is is the cultural layer that we've added upon it and kept it, sort of cloaked it in this darkness. And I'm not saying that underneath that, that kind of cloak of darkness, that it's also not scary, but we've added on so much more additional fear by avoiding it and by turning away from it. And that's true of, and I think that's true of many things. But I certainly try... I mean, any, any opportunity or anything that I haven't tried before and someone's like, hey, do you want to come try this thing or try and go to this place? I mean, I'm always going to say, always going to say, say yes. Um, uh-huh. But this is certainly the thing that I pulled most deeply into that scared me. Uh-huh. Absolutely. It's time for our first break already. So we'll come back and talk okay. more about that. And... Um, just kind of, I, I want to talk some about the the people in specific because they were, uh, they they've all lingered with me, um, not because they were some dramatically different type of person, but just because they were such deep portraits that I felt I knew them. So, listeners, during the break, you can go to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America to connect with me in whatever way you prefer. And to find Claudia, Claudia Bichon and her project, Thoughts in Passing, go to thoughtsinpassing.com. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? 
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Claudia Beechan about her art project, Thoughts in Passing, which through drawings and audio tells the stories of nine people at the end of their lives. And you can view the exhibit now or, or later at thoughtsinpassing.com. And I was saying before the break, Claudia, that I'd really like to uh, talk about the people you interviewed uh, a little bit. I, I would say a lot of them had shifted their perspective on living a bit in the face of illness or, um, you know, knowing they would die soon. Uh, A a few notably uh, were just living out what they'd always lived. But did you have that sense that somehow being near the end had affected their view of life in general or their own lives? That was a really good good summary and I, I would say that there was there was a split. There were there were definitely a number of people for whom there really didn't seem to be much change. They were continuing to live out their lives as they always seemed to have lived out their lives. And there were a couple of people for whom there were some some key shifts. I think they had had a lot. In fact, now thinking about it just as I'm speaking, a couple of people that I'm thinking of had been in hospital for a number of years towards, mm. the, end of, towards the end of their life and had been terminal for a long time and then had been moved into hospice. And I wonder what having all of that time, I'm sure, gives you, gives you a new perspective. Um, but it was certainly a mix, and that, that in itself, I think, was quite surprising to me. That's interesting because I I um, often say that the way that my experience of my wife dying affected me was very much influenced by having so much time that I didn't know if it would have been such a, a profound you know it would have changed my life certainly but the the change might have taken. Uh, the change after her death might have taken longer if we hadn't had all that preparation time. So that's an interesting point to me. Mm-hmm. The other thing, the other thing that really interested me is um, uh, I I was captivated by Aura uh, because yeah. she um, did not seem to be changing her way of living, and interestingly. She, uh, I'm I'm looking for the quote here. She said something like, um, "I've pre- I've been preparing my whole life for the day that God would decide it's time for me to to go to Him." Something like that, um, which yep. meant yep. which meant that life that life had been lived with death in the background always for her. In yeah. the sense that there's no, you know, going to God without a death, right? 
and she didn't have, she was at peace with that she wasn't in control of when that might be or how it might be or it, it didn't sound as if she troubled herself too much with that. She just tried to live a life that was in concert with her beliefs. Uh, would that capture her fair, fairly accurately? Yes, yes, it absolutely captured her. She was certainly the most religious of everybody that I, that I interviewed. In fact, most of the people I interviewed, I would say, were not religious at all. If anything, they, they may have been had spiritual beliefs but were not explicitly religious. Whereas Aura was had been a Christian her, her entire life. She was ninety nine when I was meeting her. And you're absolutely right. I think her whole life had been preparation for this moment. At least that's how she had seen it. And she kept coming back to this metaphor throughout all of our conversations that She's climbing a mountain, she's climbing a mountain. You can never see what's on the, on the other side of the mountain, but she knew that, you know, whatever God had put there, it was going to be, it was going to be good. She just had to keep climbing. And it was just this unwavering faith that was quite astounding to see. And, and I really, she didn't show me any anxiety. I don't know if, if it was there or whether at 99 and, and you've sort of spent so many decades preparing. Maybe, maybe really, it's maybe really there isn't any anxiety if, if you wholeheartedly believe that you will be with God when you die. I don't know. Not everybody well, I, I worked with had that same faith. Right. Well, uh, I don't know. I guess my opinion on it is. Um, it has more to do with having a frame of reference that accommodates death, which religion can be. Uh, not everybody yeah. uses it that way. But I am thinking about my mom, who um, I would say she was a very spiritual person. She worked in the church, so she did practice religion. But I didn't see how much she believed what she practiced in terms of um, facing the end of her life until she did and she was really without fear she I, I, you know she walked towards her death okay it's time for this now I am I am yeah. going straight for that because that's the time it is you know um, and I and I think there's a way that um, considering our deaths favors that I don't know what I'll be like when I'm actually dying, but I don't feel afraid of death now uh, because I contemplate it, you know, So and because I've experienced it with people, too. So I have to think that will help me somehow or other, <laughs> you know, that I'm... I think, that I'm, I hope, I, and I hope so. I've heard so many things, particularly from hospice workers and, and people who are kind of big game changers in this area who I think think have felt like I've been so close to it my whole life. I couldn't have contemplated it more. I've had it so like up close to me. And then you hear these stories of, you know, then it comes to their time and actually these huge waves of of anger or or anxiety or whatever it may be. And I think one of the you know, I've done so much reading in in line with the, you know, while doing this project at the same time. And I sure. think one of the things that it really showed me is that you just you 
just don't know. I like to think that by having even just done this project, maybe I will have overcome some of that. And the reality is when it comes to my turn, maybe it's going to be a whole different story. And that's okay. And I think my journey Mm -hmm. is going to be trying to learn to be okay with that. That if I end up being somebody who's very, very angry and and can't accept it, that at least maybe I'm going to be able to accept the anger rather than adding a whole second order anxiety and anger to it. (laughs) You're reminding me of of, um, something that gets talked about with um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross a lot, uh, that at the end of her life she had a a tremendous amount of anger and angst and all of that. And people were kind of saying, you, you know, the expert on death. Yeah. And she's, she's like, yes, this is exactly what I was talking about. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that <laughs> we are human and, and our bodies are human bodies as well. And yeah. how our bodies um, calibrate at that time, depending on what's going on. Uh, I, I'm with you that we, we can't guess and we and building the power the the ability to accept may be the best we can do huh i think it's the only we can do Which you know maybe feels disempowering but i think maybe that surrender is is the closest that we get to freedom mm, that's a beautiful statement when I was looking at your website and, uh, you know, uh, kind of increasing my sense of you, uh, I was very intrigued by the, the project you did before this project because it seemed to me to be so connected to what you ended up exploring in this project, uh, your project called Transience. Um, yeah in the sense that you created these beautiful uh, portraits that would, um, by design, melt away in the outdoors. And uh, it was fascinating to me that uh, how, hard, how hard a time people had um, accepting that after you created it. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Because I thought it was just, yeah. there, was, there was a lot in that that then applies to the work you, um, you are doing to kind of encounter end of life, too. Yes, it was very tied together. And just to, to give viewers a sort of overview of, what that, of that, what that was, if you haven't seen it, there was a series of portraits up in the Redwood Forest near Mendocino. It was on an, an artist residency called Project 387, and I interviewed people who lived on the land and worked on the land um, and drew their portraits on tree stumps throughout, throughout the forest. So the final series was actually a mile-long sort of meditative loop through the forest where you would stumble upon these different pastel portraits that were on the tree stumps, and the idea was that they would be made, and they would be made extremely intricately and took many, many hours, and then we would just leave them to the elements, and they would degrade and go, go back, into, back into the earth, as it were. And the idea behind it was to give people this opportunity to contemplate this thing that had been put there very intentionally and hopefully brought them some sort of joy or they enjoyed its presence, and then simultaneously being okay with the fact that it was disappearing and it, 
disappearing like everything else around us, including including ourselves. And the interesting thing that you point out was that people really struggled with this idea, even though that was the project I proposed when I got into the art residency and that was what I was always going to do. You had people immediately be like, okay, but this is great. I really like it, but do you want to, should we cover it up with plastic? So we, <laughs> you sure you don't want to spray like a, like a, a coating on it so it's going to protect them from fading? And there were all these ideas of things we should do that to, to be able to protect the art. And, um, and I was like, no, this, no, this isn't, this isn't what we're doing. But, but coincidentally, what happened is one of the pieces, the only piece that wasn't actually embedded in the forest was actually carried off site and given to the person whose portrait it was without, huh. my, without my knowledge. And I really struggled with that because it wasn't in line with the intention. It wasn't in line with the project. And I realized that sort of a few days in of being quite miffed with the fact that one of my, one of my artworks had been taken off, out of the forest. I realized that there, there I was too, sort of holding on to this idea of permanence, holding mm. on to this idea of, well, that wasn't part of the plan. And I was just another manifestation of how we try and hold on to some semblance of, of control over our environment. And almost like my own project almost tricked me also. So it was, that was a very interesting, it was a very interesting project and tied in perfectly with the hospice project. It's, I've always been the, all of my art has really been looking at, at transience and how if, if we can incorporate transience into our life, I do believe it will enhance our well-being. You know, it curiously brought to mind an experience I hadn't thought of in some time, which is that after my wife died, uh, photographs of her made me very angry. And I wasn't high on anger. I wasn't angry about much. But I felt insulted by her being captured that way when she was gone. I don't know how to describe it. And that completely wore off. I enjoy seeing pictures of her now. And it it wore off in a matter of months. But it was somehow like she had... um, it it somehow felt fake, like she had gone and here was this empty thing, uh, instead mm, of it being slither of time. Uh, uh, yeah, and um, that's sort of the flip side. You know, I I sort of uh, was feeling transient so much that anything being concrete about her seemed out of sync to some degree. But um, I, I, I'm really interested in what you're saying that, uh, that we do get attached. And I'd like to begin a conversation about legacy here um, because that's a little bit uh, – we won't get completely through it, I don't think, because we're about to have our second break. But there, I, I was thinking about what it would be like for the people you interviewed, uh, many of whom had loved ones in their lives – to be speaking so candidly, to be, to have these images created of them that were so, so beautiful. And if that maybe ha- gave them a, a bit of a sense of continuance, um, that their experience was then shared and would be available later on. I think so. I think, I think that was certainly the reason that a number of people decided to participate in the project. And what was most powerful for me is realizing how 
really the most defining thing that's happening to you when you're in hospice is, is loss. You are literally going through every aspect of your life and you are losing it, whether it's your health or your mind or, I mean, you're letting go of everything. And, mm. I, and what I think was really powerful about what we got to do together was that we were co-creating something. We were co-creating something when everything else in their life was about loss. And, and I think that was, that was really powerful to know that here I am at the very end and there is going to be this thing that I am putting out into the world that is going to continue beyond me as I'm letting go of everything else. I've had several guests who have talked about the importance of that uh, in terms of facing death, that you have to have a sense of who you will be to people later to feel safer about it. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it also helps the people who love you. Uh, you know, for instance, uh, a guest I had, Lorraine Hedke, uh helps people have conversations about what part the person who's dying, they collaborate on what part that person may play after they have died. So there's a sense mm-hmm. of kind of continuance. And um, it felt a little that way to me that no, none of the people who loved those nine folks would probably be able to look at their um, portrait and not feel them a little bit. So let's let's talk about that yeah. a bit more when we come back. So it's time for our second okay. break now. Um, listeners, you can find me at weatheringgrief.com or at Voice America. And to find Claudia Bichan and her project, you can go to thoughtsinpassing.com. Back after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. 
Welcome back to Good Grief. I've been here with Claudia Beechen, whose art project, Thoughts in Passing, is a collection of portraits and audio of people at the end of their lives, last six months of their lives. And before we went to break, Claudia, we were just beginning to talk about this idea of what people have called legacy or um, uh, leaving something behind, you know, and the way in which your project for these particular people, of course, it had a a bigger purpose inside of you and in the world, but uh, for these particular people, that that was a big part of of their desire to uh, say yes to the project. Yeah. How do you think yes, that affected absolutely. things? How do you think that affected things? Do you think they spoke with you differently with that in mind, or was it more just good? Someone will capture how this is for me. You know, that's a really good question because I think if, if if I had at the forefront of my mind constantly that, yes, this is going to be my legacy, I think I, there would have been quite a thick layer of, of performance in the mm-hmm. way in which I wanted to be perceived. And I think I, I didn't feel that in my interactions. And maybe because there is something acutely different when somebody is on their deathbed because they they really have nothing to lose. I mean, there are things that people told me in my interviews that I actually didn't include in the final pieces um, that they said, you know, I've, I've never told anybody this before. And and out of respect to them, I mean, those are things I sort of left out of the, the final pieces, but I think that, I think if they, they chose to do it for legacy, I don't think that was something that was constantly in their mind as we were interacting. It may have been part of the original impetus, but not part of the experience mm-hmm. so much. You know, it, it, uh, one of my, one of my t- uh, most deepest teachers in my life is, him, is a man named Irving Polster. Um, he's written a lot of books. He's a gestalt therapist, and he wrote a book called Everybody's Life is Worth a Novel. And um, that title came to me many times while I was looking at your portraits because, uh, you know, you didn't interview people that had some done some hugely grand thing in their lives and that's why you were interested in interviewing them. And, you know, you interviewed people that were just regular people who'd had pretty regular lives. Uh, every life has some extraordinary aspects, which is why that title kept coming to my mind. Um, but I, I remember you saying at the, um, at the event for you're going to die that you had come to think people just live and then they die, you know, almost like no big deal. Um, and yet, (laughs) do you know what I'm, uh, am I, am I quoting you properly? No, you're definitely, you're definitely quoting me properly other than that, um, I think my, when that when that realization hit me, it felt like a really big deal. Um, and what I mean what, what I mean by that is, I, I and I mentioned this that you're going to die. I went into this thinking everybody's going to be having these revelations. Everyone's going to be embodying the wisdom that I'm looking for. So there's this very like naive perspective on on maybe what I was going to find, and actually really finding that. You live, you live, you live, you are yourself, and then suddenly it's terminated was was really shocking and really powerful for me because it woke me up to this idea that we're not on this upward trajectory 
like I maybe imagined that we were, or like I think many people imagine that we all are, or mm. that even if not everybody else around them is, they are themselves, and that we are kind of working towards some ideal state. And I think this work really shook me out of that and made me realize that, no, that, isn't, that really isn't how it goes. I will die as myself. Well, it's interesting because there's a sense in which it seemed paradoxical to me because there was a sense in which um, it it was more, when I think about feeling utterly transformed, I mean, really, personality-wise, I'm not the same person I was before my wife died. There's, But mm-hmm. there is some essence that is the same that was covered over. Uh, I've come to think of it lately as almost like some things got removed, not some mm. things got added. And uh, I could apply that to a number of your guests who it was more like they realized they had been mistaken about the things they did. And they uncovered them to find themselves. For instance, I'm I'm not remembering the name at, at the moment, but somebody who was who'd been, you know, very go, 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 and was now opening the window every day. Yeah, just that was Bert. Bert, just to sit oh, with... and Harlan. Both, both of oh, them it was Harlan? and Harlan, yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just to sit with the beauty outside his window, which was what he had access mm-hmm. to. Um, there was such a contrast in the way he was living, and it was all almost like this is the real me that I was kind of not attending to for all that time. Is that fair yeah. to say? Yeah, I think that's definitely fair to say. I think what I meant by what I was saying is, you know, they were still they were still themselves and they'd had these these they they had they had had, had these sort of realizations and, and reflections. Um but I think they were very simple and I mean that in the most beautiful way. I don't mean that in any demeaning mm-hmm. way. They were these very simple realizations that it wasn't some, you know, grand revelation that we're just waiting for that's going to to change everything and suddenly make me this, like, happy whatever person that I always dreamed I would be. It was much more simple. It was actually exactly what you just said that was actually removing some of the clouds, removing some of the debris and seeing that actually those things were always present. They weren't really out there to attain it was always there. I just had it covered up with a lot of other stuff. That were, They were the realizations that I did see with people. I, I think that is so, as someone like I am who works with um, life problems, I guess, you know, who's a counselor, um, the idea that everything that's required to have the life that's best for you is already within you is is a very um, helpful concept, and it takes. It's hard for people to get that. Uh, that I think our maybe our culture trains us to be looking out there all the time for what it is that's going to make us, you know, happy, glad, and free. Uh, but really, yeah. so much more of it is is inside, huh? I think it's definitely true, and yet I'm still I still do the same thing, and I'm surrounded by people who are, you know, wanting to accomplish and succeed and, and climb this ladder. Especially having just moved back to London, where that really seems to be the defining thing amongst amongst people that I know here. It's like this sort of mission to keep going, and I don't know whether that's 
I mean, I, I think that is largely our culture, but this, I mean, this project couldn't have done more to, to shift my view on that. It's, it's really brought home the fact for me that the most important thing is, is time. And if I have the choice between time, if I can make the choice between time and money, I choose time every single, mm. every mm. single time. Well, that sort of naturally leads to something I don't, I don't really want to get out of here without asking you about, which is you, uh, having done this, I know that, you know, life is a constantly unfolding experience. So you've had this very impactful time with, with these people and with the transience project as well, I feel. What does that naturally lead you to next? Do you mean the next, you mean next project? Next project or the next, uh, what captures your imagination having kind of um, d- dove into the pool of death, you know, for a while and really, yeah. uh, really um, facing your fear of it. Not that you eliminated it, but you certainly got a different perspective on it and, you know, kind of, oh, my time is what's important. My love is what's important. All those things. Then what next? Yeah. What comes next? It's a really good question. I've certainly been thinking of nothing else <laughs> for the last <laughs> few weeks. Now this one is tied up. Um, so the next thing for me is um, I am going to teach myself animation and I want to do that in order to do a lot of work around nature and drawing nature and, and transformation within nature. I'm really pairing that with more audio and doing more interviews with people, people that are, you know, within philosophy and, and sort of spiritual practices and different scientific practices, looking at these, these similar areas of well-being and psychology and, um, and, and, even, and even still death and dying. Um, but I want to, I think, shift away from portraits for a little while and see what happens when I take on a new, a, a new type of thing. That's that reminds me of a guest I had a few uh, weeks ago, Mark Liebenau, because um, he wrote a book. He spent a good part of the year after his wife died in Yosemite, and. Uh, really experienced his entire grief through the nature that he was experiencing and decided it was all there. (laughs) You know, everything, uh, everything he, he needed to explore about life because of that loss was all right in front of him in the nature he was looking at. Uh, so something in what I need to follow his footsteps that maybe it's the natural, the natural progression. It could be, I don't know, but you certainly brought him to mind because um, he, the book that he wrote, it's called Mountains of Light, uh, mentioned his wife very few times, but you knew always that, that that was in the background and he was really talking mostly about, about nature. <laughs> so um, I can't I wait all, to... It's the same, it's all the same thing. I mean, whether it's it's ourselves or the world around us, it's all part of the same. I mean, it's you know, it's the same thing. <laughs> yes, yes. And um, the people I know who kind of heal through nature, it's it's so. Um, you know, I'm not a Yosemite person generally. I'm a occasional visitor, but um, the power of nature as metaphor. Is is very clear to me, 
as a real thing and also as as kind of uh, a way of finding meaning in it all. The the mo- it's yeah. it just keeps moving. It's not so concerned with itself usually <laughs> as we sometimes exactly. are. Exactly, and it's cyclical. It's not linear, and I think that in and of itself really goes against a lot of the metaphors that are embedded within our culture and the way we're supposed to look at our lives. We have sort of a lot of linear metaphors are embedded in our language. Absolutely. So kind of as a final uh, query on my part, you know, obviously you spent hours and hours and hours with these nine people. And I spent just a little bit of time with them through you. And they're they're lingering with me, um, as if I had met them. You know, sometimes you meet someone at a bus stop or something, and or a ca- or a cafe, and you have a really meaningful conversation, and they sort of linger with you um, in a good way. They're alive to you still. I wondered how that is for you, having got gotten to know them so so deeply and well with the ones I think a few people you interviewed are still living is that true but most of them are not excuse me sorry there are three people that are still living of the nine but of course you're there and they're here so do you feel a sense of them a sense because I would imagine they would really continue to impact you or unfold a little bit? Oh, they certainly do. I have, I, I, I mean, just the videos alone, not only have I listened, I mean, I listened, making their audio, I was taking hours and hours of audio to cut it down to these very, very small vignettes that you'll hear on the website. So I must have listened to each person's audio and, and clips of audio about literally, well, hundreds of times at the very least. And, you know, not only were they with me then, but as I was drawing their portrait, I would often listen to their audio while drawing their portrait and their faces would emerge from the page and I would really feel a presence of them being there. So it's strange that I'll draw on different people, I think, depending on where I'm at in my life. Mm. Um, And in the last, you know, a few weeks or something, the time I think they come closest to me is if I'm feeling very stressed about something or if I'm feeling very, very happy about something. So, for example, hey, when I'm feeling very stressed about something very, like, silly, like like waiting in a line to get on the train or something that, you know, just like some small thing that's frustrating, they, that's one of the quickest times that people come to me because you just say, what am I? This is, uh, this is so that's... absurd. It's sort of they bring me back into the moment. And then they do the same thing when I'm standing looking... Uh at the park and looking at nature and right now there's like baby ducks like all over where where I live and I'm like god that's, I get that's to see so, this. That's, I still that, get to see this. I'm I'm sorry to interrupt we're going to ha- we're going to have to close up but that is very beautiful that they're helping you in that way and I thank you very much for being here. Um next no, week thank I'm you. And next week I'm I'm uh welcoming Marina Catacuzino who uh has started a project, she's had it for several years, called The Forgiveness Project, and she and two of the people in her book and on her website will be with me to talk about forgiveness. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.